1: It's time to get down to business on the weekend's number one business program. Known as the king of networking, your host, Shalom Klein, has worked with thousands of entrepreneurs and created countless jobs. So, to success, let's get down to business.
2: And indeed, we're all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship and business. We talk a lot about business here. I'm with Get Down to Business, and I'm your host Shalom Klein. Uh, This is going to be a jam-packed week of content and information you will not want to miss. I'm thrilled to be joined by the President and Chief Strategist of St. Louis Trust and Family Office, a $15 billion wealth management firm. He's also an author and speaker, a leading voice in the space of wealth management and leadership, and he's written a new book, The Uncertainty Solution. I'm very excited to talk all about the book, talk all about uh, John's journey. Um, But first and foremost, John Jennings, welcome to the program.
1: Great for having me. I'm excited to be here
2: absolutely so you uh you certainly have done a lot with your uh, with your firm and i know you're really really passionate about uh about the work that you're doing which you talk about in the book but let's talk about that journey let's talk about how you came um i believe if i understand correctly out of the financial crisis in 2008 on a mission tell us a little bit about that journey.
1: yeah so up until the financial crisis i felt like to be a good it, advisor, wealth advisor, I had to know basically everything that was going on in the economy and the stock market. So I spent hours a day reading commentaries and news and watching the stock market. And I was a real student of whatever was going on. But when the financial crisis hit back in 08, 09, um, I, I couldn't see a way out. I didn't know how to advise our clients. I was fortunately mainly paralyzed with fear. So didn't do a lot of you know really big moves with clients, which was good. But I had this coworker that you know only stayed loosely abreast of what was going on and she gave this you know, I was in client meetings with her and she just gave much better advice she just was really fo- focusing on what matters and it really led me to to say to myself hey you know i need to get out of all this data and information and stop drinking from the fire hose of everything that's going on in the financial world and instead to find investment wisdom so i really went on a you know decade plus long quest for what do great investors do? What do they focus on? Because everybody reads the news (laughs) and what's going on. So what do they do that's different? And really, this book was born out of that quest.
2: No question about it. And I I even hesitate in calling it a book. It's more of a guide. And I I know uh, you and several reviewers have called it an authoritative accessible guide um, that really helps to cultivate the mindset and behavior necessary to weather Uh, that uncertainty that you've been talking a little bit about. So let's talk about what is in that guide. Again, the book is called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. The book just came out. So what is it that really you're hoping readers walk away with?
1: Yeah, I want readers to have less worry and anxiety around the uncertain state of the world uh, in general in the financial markets in particular, and it's interesting. I was uh, asked to give a, a talk, which I did in March in San Diego at an investment conference, and it was on my book. And they said, "Oh, so you're gonna, you know, tell us what's gonna happen in the future?" Because of course, it's about you know battling uncertainty. I was like, "No, no, no, it's the opposite. I'm gonna actually tell you that to invest well, you don't need to know the future, and to really learn to abra- embrace and accept the uncertainty." And instead of flailing around and doing what we usually do in the face of uncertainty, to focus on what we can know and what we can control, it will help us make better decisions and have better investment behavior. So, my book has 35 of what's known as mental models. And these are uh, they're models you keep in your head of how the world really works. And you know which ones, you know, you learned which ones to pull out when when faced with making investment decisions or having investment behavior in the face of the unknown.
2: Oh, wild, wild. Absolutely. So mental models is sort of the name of the game over here. You're imparting wisdom and evaluating investment decisions and advice. So, I mean, you are certainly running a very successful firm. So I want to use Mm -hmm. you as the example of what are some of those lessons that you've learned and if, if possible be as frank as possible of how you've come to those conclusions.
1: Yeah. So, in coming to the conclusions, part of it is just my you know uh, quarter-century long plus career in the wealth management industry, you know, ab- ab- advising clients. But another part of it is is I've really been a student of in- investing and human behavior. So I've read a, a ton of, of of books on not just investing, but you know, psy- psychology and behavior and uh, ev- evolution and physics and math and statistics and complex adaptive systems, and on and on. and and But also by observing and being a student of the great investors, I, I did learn what great investors do is they have the right behavior. And investing is really about right, having the right behavior. And my book's really about how do you adopt the best behavior. And I'll give you a quick example. So what, one of the key mental models in the book that deals with, in, with behavior is to choose as your default being inactive instead of active. In other words, make fewer or almost no decisions compared to making decisions and investments. And part of what I base this on is this fascinating study called Boys Will Be Boys, a study of gender differences in investing, where these professors somehow got a discount brokerage firm that's unnamed in the study to give them 10 years of data on 35,000 different accounts. And what these, these academics found is that the top performing accounts belong to single females then followed by married females, then married males, and bringing up the rear was, of course, single males. And they said, well, why is this the case? Well, they found that both genders, regardless of marital status, were equally as bad at making investment decisions. In general, every decision they made lost money. So the, the, the stocks or funds that they sold outperformed the ones they bought, right? So if every decision on average is bad, it makes sense that the less you trade, the better you do. And that's what they found, that the single females traded 45% less than the single males because males are generally more overconfident when it comes to investing in finance. And then Fidelity had an internal study where they said, what are the secrets of our top performing funds, or accounts? And they found that the top performing accounts typically belong to dead people or locked accounts. So it kind of goes like this: dead people, then females, then males. So if you're a male, try to invest like a female, and if you're female, try to invest like a dead person. That's an incredibly powerful mental model to to keep in your head when you are faced with uncertainty. Which is instead of you know don't don't stand there, do something, which is the usual refrain. John Bogle of Vanguard, the founder of Vanguard, likes to say, uh, when it comes to investing, don't do something, stand there is what we should do.
2: Hmm. I'm chatting with John Jennings who again is the uh, is the author of the uncertainty solution um, but also is uh, has a finance and law degree from the University of Missouri professional certificate in decision making and behavioral finance from Harvard and is an adjunct professor at Washington University's Olin Business School and the book I know uh, Charles Schwab called it a must have addition to every to anyone's Reading list, and it's it's not your typical finance book. It's really like you said, diving into those mental models. And I just want to pick one of those topics that you talk about again in the book, the Unc- uncertainty solution. Is you say what toilet paper can teach us about <laughs> investing, John? That's gonna that's gonna raise some eyebrows.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you remember back in the pandemic, where a few weeks in there was this run on toilet paper, right? It was like, almost like a bank run. You so, yeah, so you, you go into Walmart or Target or Walgreens, CVS, whatever, and there was just no toilet paper. And who knows what's initially sparked the run on toilet paper. You'd think if I, I said, Shalom, like, hey, there's going to be a pandemic. What are you going to stockpile? It'd be like water or beans or beer or something, right? <laughs> it probably, you wouldn't, toilet paper wouldn't jump to mind. But for whatever reason, once that sparked, individual rational decisions from then on rolled up to create system-wide just pandemonium and chaos so like i was in early in the pandemic it was it was was like late april i went to walgreens to pick up a prescription and all the shelves were empty except for one package of toilet paper so i bought it and i said this to the clerk when i was checking out i'm so sorry i'm buying this i'm being part of the problem not part of the solution we have plenty of toilet paper at home but i don't know how long this is going to go on right and the clerk kind of just like looked at me like it you know just Check out and move on and get your potential COVID breath away from me. Right. So it was, it was pretty entertaining. But that's how the stock market and the economy work. Whereas individual actions of, of uh, what's known as smart actors or smart agents, everybody's watching everybody watch everybody else. And we, we make, we take action that's rational for us individually, but can create system wide, just unpredictable. Unpredictable effects, and this is why the economy and the stock market are so hard or nearly impossible to consistently predict. It's because you cannot model the complexity of millions, hundreds of millions, or billions of people all interacting in a complex adaptive system.
2: Absolutely, I've been chatting with John Jennings. It's a great read and uh, some great insights from your uh, from your years in business and learning, again, uh, that that the journey, that mission that you've been on since uh, certainly that 2008 financial crisis. Um, John, it's a great read, and I want to make sure our listeners know how they could get in touch with you. Can you share your website and contact information?
1: Sure, my website is johnmjennings.com, uh, johnmjennings.com, all one word. Um, you can find more about that book. I have a blog called The Interesting Fact of the Day. You can find that in the menu. would love to have more subscribers. And of course, my book is on Amazon, so...
2: Fantastic. John, yeah. really appreciate you uh, coming on the program and sharing with us. We'll uh, link in the show notes as well so people can, uh, right. of course, follow up and purchase a copy of the book. It uh, just came out and it's a great read. Uh, Get down to business. It's powered by our good friend Tom Arabali from healthplanchicago.com, healthplanchicago.com for all of your health insurance needs. You can call for a free consultation, 630 863 3477. Quick break. we are be right back on the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. Welcome back to Get Down to Business the Show, a lot of small business jobs and entrepreneurship. We know that customer-centric companies are 60% more profitable than companies that aren't, with customer experience being one of the leading factors in differentiating competing industries today. Additionally, 87% of leaders agree that prioritizing employee happiness provides a competitive advantage. But man, this is a challenge. And we know that, uh, that uh, this is something that so many business owners, businesses are struggling with. And that's why we brought on Greg Kelstrom. The author of House of the Customer. Greg is a best-selling author, speaker, entrepreneur, currently an advisor and consultant to top companies. Um, Greg, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, looking
3: forward to talking with
2: you. What an important topic that I know uh, listeners reach out to me all about all the time. So let's dive right in. What are some of the factors that are driving businesses' needs to transform to be more customer-centric?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think from the, from the customer perspective, there's just simply more choice and there's more, there are more brands to not only choose from, but there are more brands that are competing based on, on customer experience. And, you know, some of the, the statistics you mentioned very compelling in that um, another one that I saw the other day was with, I think, almost three quarters of of customers these days, it's as important or more important to have a good customer experience than it is to have a good product or service. And so, you know, all of that kind of combining is, you know, it's just driving competition in the space and it's causing companies to look at, you know, beyond again, building a great product or service. Uh, what is it like to use that product or service? And, you know, with things like this started back in the early days of social media, but customers talk with one another and, and they share things, whether it's on social or, um, you know, through other means, there's a lot more talk about brands and experiences with brands, ratings, reviews. So just a lot more pressure to make sure that the entire experience of, uh, is, is, is great.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Again, I'm chatting with Greg Hillstrom, who is also the host of the Agile Brand um, podcast. Uh, and I know you've worked with so many different uh, companies and businesses, but it's interesting. One of the things that I've discovered is that, again, being customer centric is something that's a unifier between big businesses and small businesses. So Greg, I'm curious, are there goals that every business should be aspiring to regardless of size that achieve in order to remain competitive?
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think, a small business versus a large enterprise may approach these differently, but there, there's a few things. I mean, first, uh, companies need to offer a one-to-one personalized experience. And so if you are a very small company, you might actually already be doing that to a degree because chances are, you know, a lot of your customers and you, you greet them by name when they walk in the store or, you know, you, you have them on the phone or, or, or whatever as a very large organization, you certainly can't do that with millions of, of customers. And so you have to do that through digital means and through personalization and databases and and um, and everything like that. But that need to personalize and, and offer this, this multi-channel, omni-channel kind of experience, that's, uh, you know, I think that's shared amongst amongst all. And I think another, another big one is understanding the lifetime value of a customer, which, you know i come from a marketing background and ran a marketing agency for a number of years before i sold it and you know we were very focused often on new customer acquisition which is very important everybody needs new customers but having also done sales uh, for my most of my career i can tell you it's a lot easier to keep an existing customer than it is to win a new one and so this idea of customer lifetime value really looks at the long term and the long play here of Let's get new customers by all means, but let's get um, potentially valuable customers and let's keep our existing customers so that they can build, you know, increased value there
2: as well. Absolutely. So it's an interesting uh, title for the book, House of the Customer. And I know that's very intentional, like everything you do. So again, I'm chatting with Greg Hilstrom, um, who's the author of this book, House of the Customer. So what is that house? What is the house of the customer? Why is it helpful to think of building the customer experience this way?
0: yeah, you know what
3: I, what I wanted to do, is I've spent a lot of time over the last few years working with, I would say primarily in the in the enterprise space, so the large you know, fortune 500 company space. and And I wanted to write a book about how do they do things like the the two goals that I just described and and, and a bit more. Um, how do they actually do this? Because I think everybody agrees with the premise of, yes, we should offer good customer experiences. Nobody needs to be told that. There's a million books on that. But what I wanted to do was, you know, write something that explained, well, okay, this we agree on this. How do you do it? And so I use the metaphor of a house with all the component parts. And, you know, there's a foundation that's really the, the culture and the, um, the, the agile um, culture of, the, of the, and the customer-centric um, culture of the organization. There's the roof, which is the processes that, and the um, operations, which kind of um, guides everything. And then, you know, there's other component parts in there that look at business goals and, and outcomes, and then how we look at customer data and, and serving customers with content and offers and, and things like that. And so using the component parts of a house, it's a nice metaphor. Most people get that pretty, you know, pretty easily. And it also helps to break What is a very complex, um, lots of moving parts down into pieces so that you can analyze and, you know, as a business, you may be really strong in some areas, but there may be other areas where you're weaker. And so, therefore, you can focus on those on those parts and not feel like you have to rebuild an entire house from scratch.
2: Absolutely. So the million dollar question, I mean, everybody's asking is how can you stay competitive in a world, both one on one personalized experiences as well as increased Cons, uh, uh, consumer data privacy must coexist. Again, hot topics right now. What I know you talk about this in your book. What are some of the uh, highlights that you can share with our listeners?
3: Yeah, I mean, so this this ties into what's called a first party data strategy, and that is anyone doing a lot of advertising online right now, you are relying on a lot of what's called third party data. So you know, it's not always clear where the information is coming from, but it's helping you to target people in a certain demographic or, or location or whatever whatever the case may be. Um, because of all the data privacy concerns and regulations and, and everything, um, the, the idea is brands need to own more of their own customer data and collect their own customer data. At the same time, they need to justify why they're collecting it to those users because consumers, right and rightfully so, because of all the data breaches and and so on and so forth, um, they're reluctant to give information that isn't going to directly help them have a better experience or a better product. And so that's that first party data strategy is really how brands figure out, okay, let's ask for what we need, but only what we need. And let's justify and quickly show the benefits of sharing that information with us. And that, that builds trust and that helps kind of mitigate all, you know, man, many of the concerns around, um, you know, consumers sharing information.
2: Absolutely. And we're running out of time, but I really want to talk about the people side of things. We've talked a lot about the experiences. We've talked a lot about some of those, uh, some of those big picture goals that, again, uh, businesses have to aspire to if they want to remain competitive and, and be customer centric. But let's talk about leadership. What is the role of leadership in your mind, Greg, in a customer first employee driven brand?
3: Yeah, leaders need to lead by example, and they can't just say, again, we love our customers and we love our employees. They need to actually do it. And, and one big way they do this is prioritizing. You know, there's there's lots of competing priorities. There's shareholders. There's other stakeholders. You know, there's that needs for, for revenue and, and sometimes immediate revenue. But leaders need to lead by example, by prioritizing when there's something that puts the customer first, they actually prioritize that instead of just talking about it. Same thing with employees. If they value their employees, they they need to, they need to do it with actions um, and not just with words. And I think that's where it starts.
2: Fantastic. It's a great read. Uh, I know you've got a podcast, you've got a book, you've got all sorts of content and information out there. And I want to make sure our listeners know where they can pick up a copy of the book as well as stay in touch with you and your team, Greg. How can we do that?
3: Yeah, two things. So I have a website, it's Um, You can find my books and podcasts and, and all those things there. And then always happy to connect with people on LinkedIn as well Just search for Greg
2: Kilstrom. Fantastic, Greg. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate your passion and uh, expertise on this topic. Again, you're listening to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. Be sure you get on my website, ShalomKlein.com, And of course, on your favorite podcast app, just search on Spotify, Google, Apple. It really doesn't matter where because we are in all of those locations and more. Just search for Get Down to Business. Make sure when you check out the podcast, make sure you rate, review and share. It makes it even easier for others find out about all uh, the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. We've been on there for the past 10 years with some amazing guests. Um, so uh, chances are, if you're searching for a topic and searching for some advice, we've got it right there for you. And I always welcome feedback. So make sure you get on my website and uh, through your podcast app. Uh, my contact information is right there. Always want to know what you think. We've got some headlines, commercials, quick break here on the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. Be right back after this quick break. Welcome back to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. I am thrilled to be joined by Ben Junker, who's the co-founder and CEO of Craftsman Choice, a leading exterior remodeling contractor in Minnesota, one of the highest volume James Hardy siding installers in the United States. Um, Pretty exciting. Uh, And in fact, in 2021, Ben wrote the book, The Minnesota Homeowner's Guide to Exterior Siding, an Amazon number one bestseller in the home improvement category. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thank you. It's a great to have you on. So I'd love to get to another person behind the microphone. How did your sort of career in construction start as a job of last resort and evolve into the mm. opportunity of a lifetime?
4: Well, uh, starting on a, a roofing crew, I, I soon learned that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. And so moved up to a siding crew and then, um, you know, just looked at the guys that we were working for and, and figured, You know we could probably do this a different way and so you know kind of a series of uh hard life lessons and and banging our head against the wall until we figured out something that was going to work and you know we were able to uh, partner with James Hardy early on and uh it's uh it's life here in Minnesota and that really uh was the the difference maker for us it was we were able to differentiate ourselves from uh, other contractors that were you know, all selling the same thing, so that that really was the springboard to uh, us being able to to build our business.
2: Well, congratulations on that. So, Ben, uh, as I mentioned, you're the CEO, you're the co-founder and CEO of Craftsman Choice. So, what is Craftsman Choice? What do you guys do?
4: Mainly exterior remodeling. So, we try to stay on the outside of the house, and we've really tried to specialize uh, in the James Hardy siding. Along with that, comes with. Comes, uh windows and roofing and those kinds of things but you know we've resisted the temptation to become a jack of all trades and do additions and bathrooms and kitchens and finishing basements and you know we've really been able to, to hone in on the exterior and just and just specialize in that which is, is I, has been key to uh, our longevity
2: well, you're in an interesting line of work and this an interesting time. Uh, certainly uh, the world is talking about supply chain issues, labor scarcity. That's something that continues to be a challenge. So how has that affected your business in recent years?
4: Um, supply chain's been a, been a struggle, a lot of rescheduling and, and that kind of thing. Fortunately, the homeowners have been, um, you know, been pretty uh, pretty amicable to that. Um, as far as labor scarcity, you know, we've built up long-term relationships with our subcontractors, and they know that, you know, they're going to continue to have work from us that, you know, they're going to get paid, and they're going to be able to go job to job. And so that hasn't been as big of an issue for us as it has, I think, for other companies, just because, you know, we we've built up those long-term relationships during uh, the good times and the bad times, and we've, we've got some loyalty there.
2: And Ben, you've established yourself as the subject matter expert. You've established yourself through uh, certainly community involvement, which, which we could spend the whole episode talking about. But uh, again, as the co-founder CEO of Craftsman Choice, you are a uh, leader in exterior remodeling, contracting in Minnesota and beyond. In fact, you wrote the book, quite literally, The Minnesota Homeowner's Guide to Exterior Siding, which is, as mentioned, an Amazon number one bestseller. And there's a lot of contractors that I know seek your advice and expertise. So, what are some of the trends that you're seeing from folks in the in sort of that contracting space? What are what are conversations you're having?
4: Well, I think there's a lot of successful um, con- construction owners. By successful, I mean they're making a lot of money and they they have a good business, but they don't have uh, a work life balance. They they haven't, you know, like myself, they haven't gone to a business school. They don't, you know, have the they built this themselves and so it's 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 built around how they think it should go and so they don't have processes they don't have you know uh, a management team that are probably taking things off of their plates and so they have no work-life balance they're they're a slave to their uh, to their business and so i've you know had the opportunity to work with some of those business owners to try and get to the point where they can go to their kid's soccer game they can take a vacation and still not have the you know the business crumble around them they can feel comfortable leaving for a little bit and doing some things that you know they've worked so hard to enjoy uh by just putting into some into place some processes and, and putting yes. some key people in that can take those desks off their plate
2: absolutely and uh ben we've got about 30 seconds remaining i'm curious what is the number one bit of advice that you have frankly, for small business owners in general, what's that number one innovation or marketing technique that you've put in to really establish yourself as such a name, uh, widely known leader?
4: I, I think consistent uh, consistent branding. Just look at your website as your hub of your marketing and have everything po- point towards that, whether it's social media or direct mail or shows, everything goes to the website so that you can be the, the, the subject expert um, and in Google's eyes.
2: Absolutely. So consistency, that's great. And we'll uh, post that in the show notes as well. Um, ben, we are just about out of time and I want to make sure our listeners know where they can find your book and get in touch with you and your team. How can we do that?
4: So the book is, there's a link on our website, craftsmanschoice.com. Uh, and you can also find it on Amazon by just searching the most boring book on Amazon and my my book on siding will come up.
2: That's amazing, Ben. Congratulations on that uh, consistency. Uh, you're teaching a lot of lessons in marketing. That's, uh, that's wild. Congratulations on all your success. I look forward to following it and bringing you back onto the program uh, real soon. Thanks so much for joining us. Sounds great. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, we'll be right back. Lots more small business jobs and entrepreneurship as we continue on Get Down to Business in just a moment. Welcome back to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship we've got to treat in store for you. I'm thrilled to be joined by Paul Jackson, founder and CEO at Method, a process automation tool for growing businesses on QuickBooks, um, as well as several other solutions, which we'll talk about. A two-time founder, Paul believes that building software with a one-size-fits-all mentality is lazy and outdated, and his goal is to equalize the small business software space with technology that's hyper-personalized to the user's needs. Paul Jackson, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So there's always a story behind amazing entrepreneurs and behind solving solutions. Paul, I have to assume this was not an idea that came out of a shower one day. Tell us a little bit about how Method came to be.
0: <laughs> uh, no, it did not come out of a shower. It came out of a, a, a boardroom with a bunch of uh, bunch of people figuring out what we're going to do next. So we had just sold uh, our last business, which was called Q Express, to a private equity company. Uh, which was field service software and we're we're sitting around thinking okay we're we're young we're not done what do we do next and uh, we came up with the idea of, of building personalized software and I could go deep into how we got to that point but that's that's pretty much how we started
2: that's wild so um, definitely changing the software landscape so uh, tell us a little bit about sort of your background and and is software a thing that you anticipated when you were uh, when you're in college uh uh, getting, uh, getting into?
0: Yeah. So when I was, I was in college for business, like for commerce and finance. Um, and I didn't want to, by the fourth year, I realized I didn't want to wear a suit and do everything else everyone else is doing. And I wanted to start a company. Um, I had a bit of a software background. My, my grandfather, when I was like four years old, taught me how to code, um, but I was in finance. So there was a bit of a, a, a misfit there. And, um, and I had a service business that that paid my way through college, so I kind of mashed it all together and said, "Screw it! I'm not going to be wearing a suit. I'm going to start a, a software company." And that was uh, that was in 20, or oh, I guess the year 2000, right? Dot com boom, and uh, that was that was the first company that I started and ran that company for 10 years.
2: And really, your, your mindset, your philosophy, it seems, has really uh, shifted over time to, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, really thinking that, again, building software one-size-fits-all is outdated. And that's the gist of what you and your team are doing at, uh, at Method, which, which is great. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the QuickBooks uh, CRM integration, which I know is a big piece of what you guys do. But really, there's some larger trends that we're going to dive into. So, Paul, again, why... I guess for the small business owners that are out there, what do they need to know? I mean, QuickBooks is a software everybody's using, but it sounds like if they're just using the base platform and not doing any anything with it, they're probably missing out.
0: Well, I think it comes down to their 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 size. Like most small businesses are either solo shops; they have one employee. Very few actually scale beyond ten employees. But during that like zero to ten employee phase, they're probably just using Excel and Google sheets for a lot of their their workflows this workflow is just a series of sequential steps and they're they're using accounting software for everything else and it's around 10 employees that they uh, find that, that some of those processes that the the entrepreneur is still doing in Excel no longer works and they they become the bottleneck in uh, in the company and that's when they start looking to to move beyond just using QuickBooks to automate their their flow and that's where industry-specific software and and CRM and products like
2: Method come in. So essentially, I just realized that uh, I use that acronym, uh, CRM, which I always hate using an acronym without defining it. So CRM (laughs) is a customer relationship management system. I'm a big believer in using CRMs. We've talked about it on this program many, many times in the past. So for those that are not software junkies like you, Paul, I mean, what where? What is an integration? What does? What can a software do if it's integrated properly? And why does it matter?
0: So, uh, an integration allows you to reduce double entry or eliminate it altogether, um, and cut out steps in a workflow. So, um, the way we do it at Method is we we integrate very tightly with QuickBooks because that's the product that they all use. We got we got to nail that. So we. We take all the customers that are in QuickBooks and we mirror them perfectly in our software. Because in CRM, you need customers. You also need invoices, so your customer service reps can look up invoices. And all that data is perfectly mirrored. And that way, if a change happens in one place, it shows up in both places. So if a change happens in QuickBooks, it shows up in Method. If a change happens in Method, it shows up in QuickBooks. All without any extra work by the staff or the entrepreneur.
2: Work smarter, not harder. That sounds like something everybody can get behind. And like you said, Paul, really big businesses, you know, might be used to a lot of uh, a lot of different solutions more than just the spreadsheet. But the reality is that at some point when you're in business, you know, you start to do a lot of dual entry and not just dual entry, triple, quadruple. You're just entering a lot of the same information in multiple places, um, which is great. So uh, we're going to squeeze in a break in, in a moment and we're going to talk about some of the other trends that you're seeing. But Paul, real quick, Give us a success story. Tell us about a company that, that you have helped to uh, streamline.
0: Uh, gosh, there's so many. I, I think the the one I like the, the most for a quick minute is the, the medical cabinet maker. So we got a medical cabinet maker who's grown his company up uh, to 10 employees, um, realizes that they are no longer growing revenue because they can't get their estimates out because he's the one doing all the estimates because of medical cabinets they're custom, certain shelves can fit in certain configurations and there's rules to how these shelves fit. And he's now the bottleneck of the company because he is the only one who can make the quotes and send out the estimates of customers. So uh, he hired us to take the, the items and customers and everything that's in QuickBooks but make a custom estimate process where you can build a medical cabinet with all the rules of which cabinets and drawers go together and, and so his staff could then do it rather than him so he could continue scaling his business. That's just an example that I can think of off the top of my head.
2: That's a great success story. That's awesome. Um, we're going to continue our conversation with Paul Jackson, founder and CEO of Method, process automation tool for growing businesses on QuickBooks. Uh, we've got a lot more in store for you, so don't touch that dial. You're listening to Get Down to Business. we are be right back. Welcome back to Get Down to Business, the show on small business jobs and entrepreneurship you can always get on your favorite podcast app, download, um, rate, review, and share. Just search for Get Down to Business. So uh, I've been chatting with Paul Jackson, founder and CEO of Method. um, And Paul has a vision of how uh, the web is revolutionizing small business processes. And he's found several innovative ways to build practical solutions for customers um, using a, we've been talking about using that word CRM integrations, um, which is awesome. So Paul, I mean, it's interesting. I grew up, on certain software systems, certain packaged systems, and it was like, cool. You log into that, and that's how you do word processing. That's how you do personal finance, and so on. Paul, you're breaking that system. Tell us a little bit about uh, a little bit more about about that.
0: Yeah, we started off by talking about how we started, and we're sitting around a room. So we were, we were, uh, we had sold a rigid software product. A one-size-fits-all product. If you need to schedule work and send out invoices, this is the way you do it, and everyone does it the same. And we were thinking, but what was wrong with that? We had sold the company, success. But what was wrong? And, and what was wrong was that no two businesses were actually the same, even if they are not, even if they're in the same industry, they're not the same. And we thought, how could we solve that? And so um, when we when we approached the solutions, that we we didn't take the traditional crm approach which is where you have a uh, a really good crm that that does email marketing and contact management well but requires you to rewrite your your workflow steps in order to fit the software and we didn't take an industry specific approach which was hey you're you're this industry there's there's a way you do things in your industry and like you must do it that way because we just sold that kind of company and we knew that didn't really work because again uh, no two companies are the same you have to rewrite your, your workflow steps. So our approach was more of a, like a personalized software approach, which was what if we let our customers build their own features? What if we actually let them become programmers by using drag and drop, not, not code. Cause that would be crazy, but letting our small business customers actually build apps. Um, and that was where we got, we got really excited and, and we started the next company on. That was what method became, uh, so our, our approach to that was, one, we know they're all using QuickBooks. We all we know they don't want to give up QuickBooks. They love their QuickBooks. So if we're going to do one kind of integration and we got to nail it, it's got to be that QuickBooks integration. Um, two, no one's going to create a complete business system from scratch when they're 10 employees. So we have to start them off with really good templates. So a really good CRM template is a starting point. A really good field service template for field service companies as a, as, a, as a starting point. And then that malleable customization piece has to come in where we say, all right, well, we're taking 80% of the way there. This last 20% is unique to your company. So we're going to let you change everything about the product, add on your own workflows, your own fields, your own tables, your own screens to make sure that it's custom to you. And that would be the holy grail of business software if we could achieve that. And that's what we set to do.
2: Well, Paul, uh, congratulations on all of your success. And I look forward to following your progress and the additional solutions and problems that you are solving um, over the coming years. Again, I've been chatting with Paul Jackson from Method. Paul, I know our listeners will want to learn more about your solutions, get in touch with you, and uh, possibly solve some problems on their own. How can we do that?
0: Uh, we can go to method.me start there, get a, a free trial. Uh, we also have some resources uh, that are specific to you at method.me slash get unto business, get dash down dash to dash business.
2: Fantastic. Well, method.me, like you said, you start to learn all about the uh, the solution and the man behind the solution, which is great. Um, Paul, pretty exciting to watch your journey. And uh, again, please come back and share some of that inspiration um, with us again sometime soon.
0: Yeah, please invite me back.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Looking forward to the conversation. Uh, That's a wrap for us here on the show about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. What a great bunch of conversations we have had today. I'm inspired by the entrepreneurs, authors, subject matter experts that we have spoken to. And in fact, we have 10 plus years of uh, amazing uh, content. Uh, So be sure to check us out on your favorite podcast app. So to success, let's get down to business. We'll talk to you next Sunday at 6pm right here on AM560 The Answer. Have a great week.